Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you can join me in opening up a Bible or a device to Exodus chapter 13. We'll be picking things up at verse 17. But what do we do in uncertain times? It's a question, especially now, that we are answering whether we realize it every single day. In a time where so much is defined by fear of what may happen, fear over loss of control of what may be lost, or for many, it's grief in what has already happened, and grief over the loss of control over things that already have been lost, that we are in constant search of solid ground of where to place our feet. What do we do in uncertain times? Well, I am continually amazed that when you uh, preach through books of the Bible or in your personal kind of Bible reading plans, how often it plays out that God gives you the exact word that was already planned ahead of time to you when you need it. Right? This, this just kind of daily reality of not us going to find something in God's Word, but God's Word very much coming to find something in us. And we see that this morning as the passage that we're in is going to be such a timely and needed word for the church. What do we do in uncertain times? We saw last week the people of Israel have been uh, saved from Egypt. The exodus has uh, begun. They have exited. They are no longer slaves. And so the question is, for the rest of the book, now what? Is it just easy living here? No issues. God saves you and you just coast to the promised land. Is that the story? Absolutely not. And Exodus doesn't just serve as a key to unlocking the redemption storyline that we really saw unpacked last week, but it's also the key to unlocking the embodied, lived-out experience of the Christian life. And so we are going to dive right in. Exodus 13, follow along as we read verses 17 to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. What do we do in uncertain times? First, we commit to walking in God's presence. When Moses leads the people out of Israel, excuse me, leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, knowing that the destination is the promised land, 
which is the land of Canaan where their ancestors dwelled, the quickest route from Egypt to Canaan is along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And, and we'll kind of throw a map up on the screen to kind of show the route that goes along the sea from Egypt up to Canaan. It was a very well-known route in the ancient world. It was a direct line between these two regions, which when taken, the total time of travel would be just two weeks. It's a few hundred miles. The problem is that this region has been, many ways still is, one of the most hotly contested strips of land. And at this time, you have um, Egypt's defenses that are built up there. You have the Philistines and their armies and their peoples, um, not to mention the Canaanites on the other side, that for the people of Israel, if they were to go this route, it would be immediate war for them. So God does not lead them in this direction, not because God can't overcome foreign armies, Right? He just showed his ability to overcome the most powerful um, ancient kingdom in the world. So this is not that God's nervous about uh, being able to overcome the enemies there, but he knows that the people of Israel would see this conflict and want to return to slavery, which will be prophetic in a few verses we'll see this morning, let alone in the years ahead for Israel. Uh, but verse 18, when it says Israel was equipped for battle, that, that meant they were equipped physically. They had the manpower, they had possessions, but they were fragile mentally. And God knew that they couldn't handle going through this stretch of land. And so he leads them by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And, and Moses, who is leading them out, has in his possession the bones of Joseph, um, century-old bones to bring back with them to the Promised Land. So if, if you're just kind of reading this text, not knowing the backstory, you might be asking, well, that is the most random fact of all. Why is, who is Joseph? Why is he carrying his bones? Well, Moses quotes Joseph from Je Genesis chapter 50. When on his deathbed, Joseph had this request, verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of his land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. So, so Moses fulfills the brother's promise to do just that. Which means that in the hundreds of years, 400 years between then and here, Israel kept passing along this request from generation to generation. Right? I mean, and just imagine that. Think about your family line 400 years ago that a request was made of one of your ancestors, and across 400 years, from the year 1620 until now, there was this passing along, this request that if and when something happens, do this. So it shows that some semblance of faith has remained in the people of God. Faith that God will do what he said he would. That our people will come out of this land. And when we do, we're taking Joseph's bones with us. But what's most important here is that from the moment they leave Israel, the Lord himself goes before them. 
That, that, that God now dwells amongst his people. He is leading them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and this pillar of cloud and fire would not depart from the people of Israel for the next 40 years until they reached the promised land. 40 years that will include tumultuous times, um, high highs and low lows. But all the while, God will never leave them. God's presence is the key to walking on God's path. God, from the text, doesn't tell Israel why they're not taking the most direct route, why this just can't be a two-week trek home and then, and then boom and then easy and comfortable. But God's ways are not our ways. And, and, and we've always known that, right? But, but aren't we right now, church, experiencing another layer of that in a way that maybe we haven't before in a long time or ever? That God's ways are not our ways. And it is so important for us now, like it was for Israel then, to daily, and I mean that, daily remind ourselves that our hope and our assurance in life is not found in taking an easy path. Rather, it's found in walking in God's presence. And so if you are discouraged this morning about the things that are happening in this world with the virus, with the economy, um, with maybe conflict in your family, I want to encourage you and remind you that God has never for a moment left you alone to fend for yourself in this time. And that this difficult path does not mean the absence of God's presence, but rather He very much uses a difficult path in life to draw us near to Himself. Uh, Israel didn't know what lied ahead of them when they went towards the wilderness. They didn't know where this path would lead. They probably couldn't handle it if they did know where they were going. But they would always be able to see that God went before them. And if God was there, they were going to be okay. So don't let an uncertain time, don't let an uncertain impa- uh, path dictate your mindset day in and day out. But rather let God's very real presence at all times dictate your mindset. That this is uh, before what you do. This is a battle of how you think. This is a battle of the mind. Acknowledgement of what is real, of God's very real presence. For Israel, the presence was cloud and a fire. It would eventually turn into a tabernacle and then to a temple. But, but for us in the new covenant that Jesus has ushered in, the presence of God is not just with us, it's in us. That, that Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within his people. This is, this is why Paul talks about your body as being a temple, meaning it contains the Spirit within you. And it's by the Spirit that you can have communion with God, that you can acknowledge and, and, and experience and walk in God's presence and trust in the path He has put you on, no matter where it brings you. 
His presence, a reminder that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And your path, however hard it is or will be, is still secure. Let's keep going on to chapter 14 now, verses 1 through 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharaoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped them at the sea by Pi-Heroth in front of Baal-Zephon. What do we do in uncertain times? Second, we commit to trusting in God's providence. Uh, a, a big part of me, if you know me well, wishes that I could spend a lot more time talking about the historical conversation as to what is the actual route the Israelites took and all the disputes around the different kind of theories of what direction they went and, and what, where part of the Red Sea did they cross. Um, again, we're going to put that same picture of the map up there um, because on that map, the, the red line um, shows what is kind of historically been known as the traditional path for Israel, and there's a couple other kind of alternatives in there, um, but, but the real dispute as to where in the Red Sea did they cross, and the reason is because that, could also, that word for Red Sea could also be translated reed sea, due to reeds in the body of water, um, and the bodies of water that contain those were typically found in the northern parts of Egypt. So, long story short, I think it was the Red Sea, but the kind of northernmost part of it, um, which may, 4,000 years ago, have stretched further than it currently does, that connects with those bodies of water in the north. But anyhow, that conversation is interesting. Um, I would love to geek out on it, but it is not vital right now for us to understand the passage. Because the picture is clear before us. Israel is encamped in the desert wilderness on the outskirts of Egypt, and they are literally backed up against the sea. And the purpose is clear, that things are set up for God to display his glory and definitively get his glory over Pharaoh, now for all to see. And for the final time in this book of Exodus, we see the sovereignty of God's plan and the wickedness of Pharaoh's heart on display. And so for the last time, the question is, who is responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Is it God or Pharaoh? And the answer, as clear as day, is yes. That God and his providence makes it appear that Israel is trapped able to be defeated, overtaken again, and then he hardens Pharaoh's heart to go after him. But don't feel bad for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's no pawn here. 
we immediately see his train of thought in the following verses as well. That he is humiliated by God. And he was humiliated by the tenth plague. And when in haste, in the middle of the night, he drove the people out of Israel. But then he hears from his advisors that, hey, the people of Israel have like kind of turned back and they seem to just be kind of wandering in the middle of the desert. And his pride and his ego begins to take over once again. And he starts to question, like, man, why did I let them go? Like, like, wait a minute, I'm the king. Those are my people out there. I own them. I control them. They serve me. This is the amnesia of a hardened heart. This is the insanity of sin. That it blinds us to sound reason. And it repeats the same cycles of rebellion over and over again. And so he gets this huge army to go get his slaves back. So, so why is Pharaoh doing this? Because he's angry, he's bitter, he's prideful. And why is God doing this? So he can, with finality, display his glory. The most loving thing God can do as the only eternal being in the universe is to act in accordance to his own glory. So before we move on, I just want to encourage you in the season of the unknown, of uncertainty, to not rob yourself of the opportunity to give God the glory in all things and to trust God in his providence over your life. When we talk about glorifying God, making much of God, it's not just praising him in worship. It's trusting him in the unknown. Because he's not uncertain. He's not nervous. In all things, including a pandemic, God will display his glory. Let's keep going. Verses 10 to 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. What do we do in uncertain times? Third, we commit to standing firm in God's power. Nation of Israel has encamped on the shore of the sea, and behold, they fix their eyes on the Egyptian army coming toward them. I imagine it wasn't just sight, but they heard the sound, that they felt the ground shaking as 600 chariots were stampeding toward them, and they look around, and they have nowhere to go. And so they turn to Moses and they blitz him with questions. 
over the lament of ever having to leave Egypt in the first place. Did you notice in the reading that in the, in the cross of two verses, they say Egypt or Egyptians five times. Why did we leave Egypt? How can we left Egypt? Why aren't we better with the Egyptians? Over and over again, they blitz him with these questions, and it's capped off with this tragic statement. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Well, that didn't take too long, did it? shouldn't be shocked. We've seen this before with the Israelites. Back in Exodus 5, when they were forced to work harder making bricks, once Moses came and talked to Pharaoh, they immediately turned to Pharaoh for deliverance, begged him for deliverance as opposed to trusting the Lord. And they buy into the lie that slavery was better. Like this is ultimate, immediate, revisionist history. And it happens that when we get anxious, when panic ensues, the illusion of comfort from a dark past becomes attractive to us once again. Moses, to his credit, he responds right away to the people with four things. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. And fourth, be silent. And these commands are all interconnected with one another. But, but one thing I just want us to see here is how the fear of man speeds us up into moments of panic. You saw the trajectory of when they fixed their eyes on the incoming army the fear that welled up in them made their minds race and they sped up in their minds and in their speaking. Psalm 106, verse 8, reflecting on this very moment, says this, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. They forgot everything that they've been saved from. They, they forgot the presence of God. They forgot it all. And this is what happens when we take our eyes off of God. This is what happens when we fix our eyes on how bad a situation seems before us. And then our minds begin to race. And we immediately go to worst case scenario and panic ensues. And so I ask you, in, in your day-to-day, lived-out experience, where are you fixing your eyes right now? What are you looking at? Is the news, either on the phone or TV, the first thing you look at when you wake up in the morning? You wake up, you turn off your alarm, and the first thing you do is you're on social media or you're turning on the TV. Is it the last thing you think about and you hear before drifting off to sleep? Is your screen time just scrolling and reading and watching about the virus and the economy and, uh, and this governor and what they're doing and that state and this state? Is, is that higher more now than ever? Or, or maybe in this time what has begun to emerge is conflict that you're having with your family, co conflict you're having with coworkers, 
or, or, or others in your life and, and, and just due to everything that's happening, you just immediately escalate situations in your mind and you begin having these kind of arguments with them when they're not even there and you're accusing and fighting with them in your mind and you're getting angry and you're getting resentful and you're getting anxious and all the while your mind is racing and it's racing and it's racing. Perhaps you've begun to think, how can God say He is for me? when everything is so clearly stacked against me? How many of you are disappointed by where your life is right now? You're not supposed to be here, in this situation, in this place, with this person, in this financial condition. Church, listen to the words of Moses along with me. Don't fear. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. And be silent. Other translations say, only be still. Be still. Fix your eyes back on God. You're seeing Pharaoh's army. You're seeing the news. You're seeing the conflict. You're seeing the anxiety. You're seeing the uncertainty. But change your eye line and see the Lord. What's interesting here is that at this point, Moses had not been told anything about what God was about to do. Moses had no idea that he was about to turn around and part the Red Sea. So he is saying this along with them. He sees the army. He hears the army. But by faith, he's calling them to do and modeling what they're called to do before them like a good leader does. Remaining calm with eyes fixed on the Lord in the midst of uncertainty. That is a mark of Christian maturity. Now, listen closely. This doesn't mean denial. This doesn't mean the Christian thing to do here is to to deny the situation, to act like things aren't that bad, or there's no real danger out there, there's no real difficulty out there for us. Because you know what? There is. We've seen it. We're in it. We're going to see more of it. But it means remaining calm, even in the times when it is, quote, that bad. And being silent and still before the Lord, it's not a mark of immaturity, but maturity. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, uses in ways that seemingly only he can to compare it to a soldier. Um, The quote will be on the screen. Follow along. I dare say that you think it a very easy thing to stand still, But it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns, not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, Stand fast, and having done all, still stand. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace.
it takes much grace and all the strength we have in Christ to stand firm and be silent with our eyes fixed on God. What will Israel see when they do that? Let's go. We're going to read chapter 14 here, verses 16 to 18, and then jump 21 to 30. Hang with me. Sorry, starting verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh and that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. What do we do in uncertain times? We commit to crossing in God's provision. The crossing of the Red Sea, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's often a favorite and most memorable one amongst Christians, especially those from a young age. People see the images of the, pic- of the movies in their mind when they're kind of crossing. They have this kind of huge wave on the right, huge wave on the left. There's always like a shark flying around in there. We don't know what it looked like. But they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. And this is a picture of both judgment and mercy. It's a story of both rescue and destruction, and the dividing line between the two is God himself. Israel walked across dry land, crossing through the water from death to life. Egypt and Pharaoh destroyed in the waters of death, never coming out on the other side. And in a matter of moments, Pharaoh went from thinking he had God's people trapped, he had them overpowered, to then seeing he has been defeated and he won't make it out victorious. God got glory over Pharaoh like he said he would by using Pharaoh's own power against him. 
and sovereignly orchestrating his demise, even as Pharaoh thought he was about to experience victory. If this strategy sounds familiar, it's because it is. God will do the same thing to Satan at the cross of Jesus Christ about 2,000 years later. Satan orchestrating his plan to destroy Jesus through the hardened hearts of the Jewish leaders and the Roman rule to crucify him. And to Satan's view, Jesus looked trapped. How could Jesus let this happen to himself? He just kind of walked right into it. His reign is now over. He gets arrested and tortured, and he gets hung on a cross with nails in his feet and hands. And when Jesus' heart stopped beating, and he breathed his last, Satan must have thought he'd done it. But it was all part of God's plan. His attack upon Jesus was the very means through which God would simultaneously rescue his people from sin and destroy the power of Satan in one fell swoop. Just as the Red Sea was a place of provision for Israel and destruction for Pharaoh, so the cross serves as a symbol of provision for sinners and destruction for Satan. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for you. He will accomplish His purposes through you. And He will get the glory as He rightfully deserves. But crossing the Red Sea doesn't just link to the cross of Christ, the Apostle Paul would also link it to baptism in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2. That that this climatic event that gets ultimately, uh, that gets Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brings them through the waters, and those waters are where the enemy is destroyed, and God's people come out on the other side in their salvation. This is the picture that the waters of baptism provide us. That, that when a believer enters into the waters, he or she is embodying the truth that God does not intend to destroy us, but redeem us. And our confession in the water is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in Christ, we plunge under the water in baptism. And it symbolizes our old self dying with Christ. And it's under those waters where our enemy is destroyed, where the grip on us is destroyed, because when we emerge out of the waters of baptism, we rise again with Christ as a new creation, crossing through the water to the other side of our salvation. And as Israel now will begin their journey on the other side, to the promised land of Canaan, so we, after baptism, embark on this journey of the Christian life toward the assured hope of the promised land of eternity with God. This is why the New Testament says, repent and be baptized. Baptism doesn't save us. The water doesn't save us. It declares our salvation. It makes much of the Lord And it provides a powerful picture of crossing through the waters and emerging in Christ. And church, it's important. Baptism is important. It's not just this token thing that Christians can do. It's a matter of obedience. 
that Christians ought to do, primarily before, because God's Word commands it, that it's a means of grace for you. And it's not just for you. It's for your church to see and, and be edified and give glory to God of how He saves His people. It propels you on the journey to the promised land that will be tumultuous, but that you will remain in Christ until the end. Brothers and sisters, if you have not been baptized as a believer, I urge you to do so. Because I'm afraid you are robbing yourself of declaring that victory before others. And, and, I, and I lament, I want to own this a little bit too, that I, I don't think we slash I even emphasize it enough like we should. And maybe that's out of fear of me, or maybe it's out of fear that you don't kind of want to. There's something about it that scares you, or you don't think you're worthy enough, or kind of what underlying fears are there, or busyness, or just not thinking about it. But I think we might have underemphasized baptism. But God gives us the opportunity in this passage to reawaken it in us. And for those who have been baptized, I pray that you would remember your baptism to walk in light of that. For those who haven't, to seriously consider it. To reach out. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what's been keeping you from it. Because when we gather once again, I would love for nothing more than to have a procession of Grace Church members and attenders wanting to take this step for your good, for the edification of our church, but most importantly, for the glory of God. So what do we do in uncertain times? We walk in His presence. We trust in His providence. We stand firm in His power. And we cross in His provision. Lift your eyes, church. See the salvation of the Lord this day and every day until glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you how you provide we thank you, Lord, how you save, Lord, and you've given us opportunity and pictures, whether it be the Red Sea or in baptism, to, to proclaim your salvation, to walk in light of that in your presence. Lord, that we are baptized once for your glory, but as Paul says, that we die to self daily, that, that this is a daily walk, a daily remembrance of our baptism and letting that propel us into the life and the uncertain path ahead, Lord. So I just pray that you would lift our eyes individually and collectively as a church, Lord, and that you would strengthen our trust in you and let it be for your glory. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.